0: Did you know anybody who spoke Gaelic? I knew one person who was like a a genuine native Gaelic speaker.
1: Yeah, I know quite a lot of people that speak Gaelic, actually. Because, I'm, you know, the Highlands was definitely more Gaelic-y than than other parts of Scotland. Mm. And the islands, especially.
0: The only person I knew who um, learned it from her her father's stable hands, um, because she was the daughter of a duke, which... Duke and Earl, I forget, which I, I think is like... Well, yeah, you know, that's a, a posh Classic Gaelic. posher. She would literally climb down from her tower to go and, like, hang out with the stable boys. Not in the romance novel sense. She was, like, eight. But still, I, I'm like, that's proper, like, upper-classness there.
1: Yeah, I, I got... My only experience with Gallic was I did get sent a couple of Easter holidays to... Uh, they call it a of, It was, like, week-long music school and you had to learn how to play the tin whistle. Um, oh. I've got to... <laughs> I've got yeah, the, I can do the, I can do a very rousing rendition of my heart will go on on the Oh god. Month. Hello and welcome back to Don't Touch Your Face, Foreign Policy's weekly podcast on the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Amy McKinnon, a staff writer with Foreign Policy.
0: And I'm James Palmer, Foreign Policy's deputy editor.
1: The murder of George Floyd sparked an unprecedented response. Over the past three weeks, people have taken to the streets across the country in outrage at what many have decried as a pandemic of racism in this country. We're going to look at how the coronavirus has laid bare structural inequalities, not only in the United States, but in many countries around the world. We'll be joined by Professor Margaret Burnham, Director of the Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Project at Northeastern University. We'll also hear from Rudabe Kishi, Director of Research with the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project. But first this. If you're enjoying this podcast, I'd like to recommend the COVID Daily News. Hosts Nate Duncan and Ben Taylor were two of the best analysts in the NBA statistical community, and then the NBA shut down. So they decided to spend hours each day aggregating and evaluating the most important coronavirus news and research. So you can stop doom-scrolling your timeline and instead get the most important news to know where this pandemic is headed. Search Nate Duncan in your podcast player. So James, have you been to the protests in DC?
0: Yes, I went down a couple of times uh, Mm. on the Tuesday after... Uh, the tear gassing of Lafayette Park, and yeah. then again on the Sunday. And on Tuesday, you know, the mood was palpably sort of angry. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, like chants and raised fists, and huge numbers of people gathering quite spontaneously. There wasn't sort of, you know, messages going out organization, it was literally people just headed down yeah. the avenues uh, following others. Um, and then by the Sunday, the mood had completely shifted, and there was much more of a sort of hmm. celebratory aspect to it. I mean, almost yeah. like the aftermath of a, a festival, and you know, yeah. protest art and people giving out free food and drink, and a very kind of convivial, like city feeling um, about mm-hmm. the whole thing. Um, so, and you know, I think that that mirrored the draining off of tensions that DC felt in particular. Right, because by Sunday,
1: a lot of the, at least federal law enforcement had left the city, and it was just D.C. police.
0: Yeah, and the prospect of like live fire, which seemed like a a real reality on Monday or Tuesday, had gone. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was a real reality, as, as the stories that are coming out now show.
1: I'd been watching the protests and really weighing whether or not to go out because of COVID. You know, my partner has an underlying condition, and we've been super careful, but... By Tuesday, and I think I know a lot of people who, the, like, the balance just tipped. So I masked up, and a lot of people I know did the same and went out on Tuesday. And the crowd was huge
2: mm-hmm. in downtown mm-hmm. D.C.
1: But I think that's a calculation a lot of people have been making is, is that balance between, you know...
0: Communal responsibility and communal safety. I think the need to stand up for things, um, but also to protect others. And, you know, I know quite a few people who have wanted to go but haven't been able to make that decision because they live with elderly parents or they have conditions themselves. And so they've erred on the side of caution. Which I think is really the remarkable thing about those protests is they would have been even bigger under normal conditions.
1: I thought it was telling that the World Health Organization actually put out a statement which supported protests. You know, they were, you know, encouraging people to be careful, but they said they fully support equality in the global movement against racism. And I think that's indicative of what's at stake here. You know, a lot of people have made the point that, yes, COVID is killing a terrible amount of people, but, but so does racism in this country.
0: Mm. I think it, it's a difficult decision, though, because I, I feel like it did confuse some of the messaging on the one hand i think that the best epidemiologists have been very careful on this because they've said on the one hand yes this is hugely important and people need mm. to have the right to go out and yet that risk is still there and you have to be aware of that risk yeah and by yeah. and large i think uh, people have been very responsible certainly more responsible than the police who were almost always unmasked
1: yeah that was interesting i noticed that as well yeah all the protesters had masks
0: yeah very disciplined and you know that's important too because although outdoorsness and so on reduces the risk of course a lot of singing and shouting and spitting all these things that do create virus transmission so the masks I think were particularly important and you know I mean this is really touch wood but it's been more than two weeks since the Minneapolis protest started and we don't seem yet to be seeing a a spike in numbers as a result so it's very hard to tell
1: and actually some of the police action has been the most dangerous with regards to covid Um, Like in D.C., we saw that they, you know, they kettled in a whole bunch of protesters onto Swan Street and about 100 people were forced to flee into this guy's house. And, you know, Mm -hmm. that's a COVID risk.
0: Mm -hmm. Friends of mine in New York were arrested and sort of crammed in with, you know, hundreds of other people in uh, in cells. These conditions, as we've seen with these mass prison outbreaks across the world, in China, in the U.S., in Canada, have all had severe prison outbreaks because a prison is absolutely perfect incubating conditions for for COVID. And because, of course, a lot of prisons don't allow protection like Mm. masks or didn't until it was too late. So, uh, you know, that is a a serious concern. But at the same time, I think it's a a hopeful sign that people are still committed to civic life and committed to community life. And if anything, maybe even more committed as a result of that feeling of communal suffering.
1: I think we're gonna be talking for many years to come about the extent to which these two things are related, the pandemic on the one hand, and this unprecedented reaction that we've seen on the other to George Floyd's death. And this was something that I asked Professor Margaret Burnham, who is the Director of the Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Project at Northeastern University. Here's our conversation. What happened to George Floyd happens all too often in this country, but what do you think it was about this particular instance or this particular moment in time that has proved to be a breaking point?
2: I think uh, that the Floyd uh, killing came on the heels of a another incident that occurred uh, or that was brought to public consciousness just two weeks earlier, two or three hmm. weeks earlier uh, and that was, of course, the uh, Georgia uh, murder of uh, of uh, Ahmed Armory. Mm-hmm. So it was a combination of um, the persistence uh, and, and and of this brutality uh, that brought people out on the streets. But it was also uh, a realization that a uh, that the state had been failing uh, to uh, bridge this huge uh, racial gap. Mm -hmm. Uh, in so many different ways, not just in terms of uh, police uh, force, police brutality, uh, the militarization of the police, but as well uh, that the health system had uh, failed to do uh, what the state promises to do, which is to keep people uh, healthy and safe. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the combination of the evident disparities revealed by the pandemic uh, and of course, um, any pandemic will reveal inequalities. But this one in particular, uh, which made it so clear that uh, poor people and in particular vulnerable populations, people of color, mm-hmm. uh, were under particular threat for succumbing to this disease. The combination of that with the inability of the state to provide a, a, a solution uh, to this longstanding uh, problem of police violence and pro- police brutality and pl- racist policing. Um, those two things together, I think is what brought people uh, into the streets. Uh, mm-hmm. People w- uh, people are just sick and tired of the failures uh, of the state to address these longstanding grievances. Yeah. When this podcast comes out
1: on Monday, it will be exactly three weeks since George Floyd was killed. And in that time, to me, at least, it feels like there's been a shift, that something has changed in the way that we're talking about these issues and the the intensity with which we're talking about these issues. You've been involved in civil rights work since the 60s. And and with that long lens of perspective, how are you feeling about this moment that we're in right now? Does it feel different to you?
2: In many ways, it's uh, very similar, but it's also um, quite different. Uh, What's the same about Um, this particular moment of protest, uh, is that young people are leading the way. Um, Mm -hmm. This is a movement that has brought young people all across um, the world into the streets. Uh, Obviously, their methods, their uh, strategies are different from uh, those of the past. You know, social media plays some role in this. Uh, But also the moment that we, we are in, the political moment that we're in is very different uh, this time around, uh, than uh, earlier movements, and in particular the rise of the civil rights movement in the 1960s. So where the U.S. is in a different place. Um, the U.S. at this point is uh, is is not a you know a, a, it's not a society that can in any way pretend in any way pretend to be a great society. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a society that has experienced uh, economic uh, decline and uh, and that will be uh, amplified uh, and deepened uh, by the pandemic. there's no doubt about that. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, so with the civil rights movement, you know it occurred in the midst of the Cold War and the midst of the American century, um, those things have passed. Um, and mm-hmm. so we're now in a moment uh, in which uh, the whole question of globalization, is uh, up for grabs. Whether or not there's any staying power to globalization, uh, mm-hmm. whether the borders will be uh, the rule of the day again, as opposed to you know the sort of neoliberal developments that uh, produced the global economy, um, and that uh, and where certain people and certain groups uh, ended up on the short end of that stick. So this is very very different. You know, uh, here you have uh, China and uh, Russia. Um, that are emerging in a political vacuum created by the American reality, the American political and economic reality. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have, you know, the rise of authoritarianism uh, uh, across the globe, but in particular, you know, our own country leading in that. And also uh, ineptness and incompetence on the part of uh, our federal government. Um, so back in the 1960s, we actually looked to the federal government. Uh, maybe our maybe our hope that the federal government could provide rene- remedies was misplaced. Uh, but we could look to the federal government as a source uh, for um, ending the kind of oppression that African Americans were experiencing, and that brought them and their allies into the street. Um, the federal government's on the wrong side of this of these issues um, at the moment. Um, it's really the federal government that has failed marginalized communities. Um, in every way. Um, so, as I say, you know, there are similarities, but there are also very, very significant differences in uh, the political valence uh, and how this uh, moment uh, registers differently from 1960. The other thing I will also say: uh, you have uh, large numbers of white young people who are coming out, people coming mm-hmm. out with their families all over the world. In ways that w- w- did w- did not did, were not uh, true in the 1960s. Obviously, there were uh, always they have always been white allies for African American in the African American liberation movement. But in this moment, people uh, are seeming coming out not just because they want to ally themselves uh, with the liberation cause, uh, the the age old uh, historic historical liberation cause of African Americans, uh, but they're also coming out because of their own um, affiliations and attachments and because of the world that they themselves want to live in and the concerns that they themselves have about the direction of our country.
1: I was reading in your biography that you were appointed by Nelson Mandela in the early 90s to serve on a committee which investigated allegations of human rights violations within Mandela's party, the African National Congress, which became a precursor to the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions. What did you learn from that experience, which you think could be applied in the United States now?
2: The uh, African National Congress and uh, South Africa in the early, uh, in the the late uh, apartheid and post-apartheid era were positioned, uh, as it were, on a bridge. They were making a transition from the racist regime uh, of the past into a new world. And the question, you know, when you're in transition, the the question is, is is it going to be a successful transition? Uh, Are you going to get there? And, you know, and who's defining there? And are you going to lose people along the way? And so it creates a kind of existential crisis for those who are in transition because you don't really, uh, you don't know the future. You can't really, you don't have a looking glass to see whether you're going, your dispensation is going to be better on the other side or, or maybe not so much better. And, you know, the U.S. has never really had that kind of a very sharp transition uh, yeah. from one regime to the next. Uh, we've all, you know, what one could say that we've always been in transition, that we've never made a successful Um, transition from slavery uh, to a post-slavery era, Um, that the Reconstruction period was not such a, was an unsuccessful transition. The Civil Rights Movement was an unsuccessful transition to the extent that we're still dealing uh, with the issues of white supremacy and police violence that were um, the topics of concern during the Civil Rights Movement. Um, But certainly we are in movement at the moment in a way that we have not seen in our country in, in 30 years. Um, And so certainly since really since the Vietnam War, when people turned out in huge numbers in the way that they're turning out today. So it comes with that same kind of anxiety and existential crisis, if you will, uh, both uh, in terms of, you know, our broader political sensibilities, but also personal um, in in, in that we don't know. Uh, whether this will be successful. And when I say Mm -hmm. whether this will be successful, what I mean is the inherent fight against fascism, uh, which underlies the movement of people in the street, Um, that people are in the street, not just because George Floyd's death signified to them um, the continuing reign of white supremacy and and the depth of uh, hatred of African American continued uh, hatred for African Americans, um, but also um, they came into the streets um, because uh, they see that our country sits on a precipice, and that we could lose it. We could mm-hmm. we could actually lose it, and that's really what's driven people really in the U.S. and and I, and I could say across the globe um, yeah. back into the streets.
1: That was Professor Margaret Burnham from Northeastern University.
2: The coronavirus has swept the world and forced drastic measures to defeat it. It's also proving, though, what is possible in the fight against another major global threat — climate change. Heat of the Moment is a new series by FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds. It tells the story of those on the front lines of changing the way that we eat, travel, and live our lives. This podcast outlines not only the great challenges that face us, but also looks for a new path forward. Look for Heat of the Moment wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I do think it's going to be interesting to see how protest movements around the world evolve as lockdowns begin to ease um you know that's something i spoke about with our next guest and you know she said that 2019 was the year of protest year of social movements and basically any grievances that you had going into this regarding inequality injustice corruption poor governance that's all just been magnified tenfold by the pandemic so i think we're in for a very interesting few years when it comes to social movements and protests.
0: Absolutely, and I think that cost is really going to bite as the measures designed to reduce the impact of lockdown wear off, like increased unemployment or, Mm. you know, the covering of salaries, but some of the economic cost, you know, falls, of course, disproportionately upon the poor. I mean, we've seen, you know, America's billionaires have added something like half a trillion dollars to their wealth. during the months of the pandemic. Um, And yet at the same time, unemployment has soared to new levels. You know, even in my extremely lush DC neighborhood, we have many encampments of homeless people forming, you know, this sort of Trump town feel. Mm -hmm. The population of homeless people has maybe tripled um, in the last few months near me. Um, We're going to see real anger and bitterness emerging for any number of reasons. Economic causes, uh, injustice. Mm -hmm. Uh, In a lot of the world, I think food insecurity is going to be a pretty critical issue. We're already seeing some of that in the Philippines. And so we could really be looking at a time of, you know, both rage and perhaps the possibility of change.
1: And so to talk about how the pandemic has shaped protest movements and what may be in store in the future, I spoke to Rudabe Kishi, the director of research with the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project, or ACLED for short, an organization which tracks protests and incidences of political violence around the world. Here's our conversation. So, I mean, maybe I should just start, again, this is very broad, but what impact did the coronavirus and associated lockdowns have on
3: protest trends around the world? Well, coming out of uh, 2019, which was the year of social movements, um, we saw a precipitous decline in those mass numbers of demonstrations that had really peaked towards the end of the year, especially in a lot of places and early this year. So restriction movements, fear of spreading of the disease, you know, all of these various factors combined really played a role in and really, bringing a lot of these demonstrations to a screeching halt. Some of them kind of persevered with small-scale kind of demonstrations. People seeking new forms of demonstration. But for the most part, a lot of those larger movements stopped. Mm-hmm. We were seeing much more around the immediate needs. You know, whether they're health workers needing access to mm-hmm. PPE, people, you know wanting um, financial support given the impacts. You know, the economy, things like that. It really pivoted to that in just recently, in very recent weeks, as restrictions begin to be lifted, we're seeing a slight uptick in demonstrations. Um, And I think that these will kind of continue picking up, especially in places where COVID has really given a very ready example of some of the grievances that these movements had prior to the pandemic.
1: I mean, that seems to have been one of the factors here in the U.S., I mean, there are, I think, many reasons why uh, this movement has coalesced around George Floyd's murder in particular. But one factor does seem to have been uh, that the pandemic has really shown in very stark terms inequalities in the country, and particularly in terms of race. I mean, are you expecting to see similar trends in other countries where, you know, long-standing problems that have been exposed further by the pandemic? that that's going to fuel further protests?
3: Yeah, definitely. I mean, in the U.S. context, there have been very clear winners and losers, I think, coming out of the the pandemic. Um, And I think um, the the subset of people that overlap with those who are essential workers, those who have less access to health care, um, have been many of the same populations. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, what we have been seeing, specifically around... um, you know, the solidarity protests, for example, with Black Lives Matter, is that the BLM movement has offered a sort of brand mm-hmm. of anti racism, anti police violence for different contexts around the world. And so we've been seeing in a number of countries that people are applying their own martyrs, so to speak, to the solidarity protests. So, I mean, it's about George Floyd, but it's also about Giovanni mm-hmm. Lopez in Mexico. It's also about Joao Pedro in, in Brazil. It's about, you know, the Kurdish man that was stopped in mm-hmm. Tokyo. Um, in a number of countries in Western Europe, we've been seeing demonstrations over police violence against minorities, or even police violence more generally. And you know, these have been going on for for some time. And what we've been seeing is that many of these demonstrations are now being branded, quote unquote, as Black Lives Matter. More recently, but then when it comes to things beyond racial inequalities and things, we've been seeing COVID really create a context around. Economic crises, issues with impunity of elites, government mismanagement, and in some ways, the pandemic has really provided ready examples of a lot of those. Like many economic crises have gotten mm-hmm. even worse now. So I can imagine that COVID maybe stopped demonstrations from physically mm-hmm. happening, but I imagine that they will likely start back up, perhaps with a vengeance. Um, we're seeing, you know, places like mm-hmm. Lebanon, for example. The demonstrations were quite peaceful before the pandemic. The ones that have now kind of picked up again have turned quite violent.
1: You mentioned that as part of your, your COVID tracker, you're also looking at state violence and police violence.
3: Yes, oh, well, state repression, I mean, well, and that can be kind of broadly understood. Right. Police violence through um, excessive force in um, applying and enforcing mm-hmm. these curfews and restrictions. And then, you know, the more quote-unquote subtle state repression through the quiet expansion of powers, uh, you know, new um, emergency laws that might need to be passed that might have no end date in sight.
1: I saw on your site that there'd been a real spike in police violence in South Africa during the lockdown. What was behind that?
3: There had been certain laws around prohibition and restrictions access to um, alcohol. I think the idea being that that would make enforcement of the pandemic simpler. And so I think some of the violent enforcement we were seeing were of that restriction. We actually had a specific spotlight on that um, as well, because it's kind of a unique situation, I think, there. Um, But we were seeing the violent enforcement or very excessive enforcement of certain Certain restrictions that have been put in place. I think you know, we were seeing similar things around some of the other countries in Africa, especially there were reports coming out that we're having more deaths from the successive enforcement of restrictions rather than the disease.
1: Where do you think things go from here? I mean, are we on the brink of just the world erupting in protest?
3: I don't know if everyone's ready to take to the streets and what is going to be the threshold for what you know what will push them over that i do think we'll see kind of an uptick especially those places that had already had all of these grievances yeah. in terms of the social movements of 2019 um again i think it's because it's they've been really um proven right i guess in some ways right that everything they were upset about got even worse
1: that was Rudabekishi from akled that's it from us this week We'll be back next Monday, and don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, head over to farmpolicy.com for all the latest news and analysis on how the coronavirus is shaping the world as we know it. And if you have pandemic fatigue, and let's face it, no one would blame you, we've got plenty of coverage of all the other things that are happening in the world as well. I'm Amy McKinnon. And
0: I'm James Palmer.
1: Our show is produced by me and Darcy Palder, and is edited by Rob Sachs. Our web team includes Laurie Kelly and Kelly Kimball. The executive producer for news and podcasts at Foreign Policy is Dan Efron. Until next time, please remember to wash your hands.
0: And don't touch your face.